I'm Amanda Picchini, Clinical Lead for Genetic Counselling at Genomics England. You're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. Today, on Genetic Counselling Awareness Day, I'll be joined by Dave McCormick, member of the participant panel to Genomics England, Sarah Levine, consultant genetic counsellor at the Centre for Reproductive and Genetic Health and chair of the Association of Genetic Nurses and Counsellors, Janice Bailey, a cardiology clinical nurse specialist and pre-registration genetic counsellor, and Heather Pierce, genetic counsellor with the Neuralnet Project at the University of Cambridge. Genetic counsellors help people understand complex information about genomics, as well as provide guidance and emotional support. This might be about their family history, having a genetic test, or dealing with a result. They can work in a wide range of roles. In my role at Genomics England, I bring these skills to support how we engage with our participants and how we design and deliver our work like the Newborn Genomes Programme. As genomics becomes more commonly used in healthcare, more and more people are likely to require genetic counselling and more healthcare professionals needing to rely on their expertise. So welcome to this episode of The G Word. So welcome, Sarah, Heather, Janice, and Dave. Thank you so much for joining us today to share some of your experiences with the G Word listeners. I'd like to start just generally by asking if you could each tell me a little bit about your journey to becoming a genetic counsellor and what you do in your day-to-day role. Sarah, perhaps I'll start with you first. Hi, I'm Sarah Levine and I'm a consultant genetic counsellor and I started out because I was actually just studying genetics as an undergraduate degree at Birmingham University and I loved the science but I've got to say I never really enjoyed being in a lab and I didn't know quite what that meant and where that would lead me and then one day in a lecture in my third year they happened to make a fleeting mention to genetic counselling without any explanation and I dashed up to the lecturer afterwards and I said what was that you said and he's like oh I think that's something that doctors do and I thought, oh, that bitch, that's a bit disappointing. But I went straight to the library and I looked it up and then I discovered actually it was a profession. And then I stumbled across the fact that there was at that time a sort of fairly new uh, MSc master's programme in genetic counselling in Manchester. And I was really lucky to be accepted onto that programme the following year. And after I completed it, I joined the team at Guy's Hospital in London, initially on research projects for cancer families. And I spent most of my early years in genetics, uh, doing cancer genetics. And then in, I think it was 2005 or so, I got the opportunity to move into a different area of specialism within uh, the genetics team at Guy's, which was uh, PGD, as it was called then, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is when we do IVF treatment for uh, patients or couples who have genetic conditions or at risk of having a child with a genetic condition, so that not because they need fertility treatment, but so that we can test the embryos and uh, choose an embryo that is unaffected by the genetic condition to give them the opportunity to start a healthy pregnancy. And I was lucky enough to uh, be able to join the team that offers that service at Guy's. And I worked in that area for many years. And then I I left Guy's and moved to um, a a sort of specific IVF clinic called um, the Centre for Reproductive and Genetic Health, which is a big centre for PGD in London. And I've been there since 2017. And um, now that is basically that the kind of the genetics of the fertility world um, and of of uh, PGD treatment is is my day-to-day uh, role. 
And uh, you also, I know, wear a different hat where you are chair of the Association of Genetic Nurses and Counselors. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that organization is? And I'm sure we'll hear more about that as, as we go along. So the Association of Genetic Nursing Councils, the AGNC, is basically the representative body for the profession. And so people join it in order to get uh, the various things that we kind of provide for the membership, which are we do conferences and professional development courses and things like that. But we also are there to be a representative body to the outside world and obviously that a lot of that is talking to higher up parts of the NHS about the future of the development of the profession and how we fit in to NHS structures. Uh, it's talking with our colleagues from other specialities who we work closely with and their organisations. I mean I know there's only a little over 300 or so genetic counsellors in the UK at the moment compared to the over a million people working in the NHS. So mm. having that central body that brings us all together, I think is uh, pretty crucial. Yeah. Thank you. Heather, do you want to tell us a little bit about your role as you've got uh, a slightly different one? Uh, sure. Currently what I'm doing is working as a genetic counselor with a research project called NeuralNet, uh, which is uh, being coordinated by the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Cambridge in cooperation with other hospitals in the region. And uh, what it's designed to do is look specifically at rare diseases having to do with neurodevelopment and uh, mental health issues in the pediatric population. And specifically the project that I'll be working on for the next couple of years is uh, doing whole genome sequencing, which is looking at the entire genome of children with a clinical diagnosis of cerebral palsy. Um, and so one of the reasons for doing this is uh, to sort of develop the pathway uh, for doing whole genome sequencing in a clinical setting, because mainly it's been done in, in a research setting uh, for the most part. Uh, so getting that pipeline developed uh, to be done um, at Addenbrooke's, uh, where I work, uh, but also to look at the genetics of cerebral palsy, which traditionally hasn't been regarded as a genetic condition. Uh, but with recent studies, which have mainly occurred in Australia, uh, about a third of children with cerebral palsy have been noted to have a genetic cause for um, their symptoms. Um, and it's quite different from what I was doing before, which was full time. But uh, I, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to doing full time research uh, for the first time in my career. That sounds really fascinating. And so how, how are you finding that you're bringing your skills as a genetic counselor into what that research project is is doing? Um, so the, the research project itself was primarily focused on uh, just looking at the genetics of things. So actually looking at the, the gene changes that we'd find in these uh, families where the kids have cerebral palsy. And so what I have been able to bring to the table is actually looking on the impact on the families of doing this type of testing. Um, so in addition to just looking at the, the genetics, uh, we're also looking at attitudes uh, towards uh, genomic testing for these families, again, because it's not really a, a population that's been approached about genetic testing before, uh, but also the psychosocial impact of doing these types of tests in, in families um, to see what their attitudes are and whether it's actually something they they want to be offered 
in the future. It's not currently something that's offered on our current uh, genomic testing directory for cerebral palsy. Uh, so we hope in part from this, this study to give evidence that it's both reasonable from a standpoint of there being enough children with genetic causes to justify the testing, but also something that the families would actually want us to do. Um, so that's what I, I hope to bring to the table here. That's really important. Thank you. Um, Janice, I'll, I'll turn to you. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey? And you're not just a genetic counsellor, but you have uh, another role as well. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. Yeah, I came to um, genetic counselling quite a bit later than everyone else in my career, probably. So I've been um, a specialist cardiac nurse for many years. I've always worked in cardiology. And um, within the role that I was doing, I was sort of developing services for patients with inherited heart conditions and also families who were affected by um, you know, family members that had got inherited heart conditions. So sort of to understand a little bit more um, about what these families needed, I, I went on some local genetics courses at my local university. And um, to be honest, I was just hooked really <laughs> quite quickly. <laughs> um, I think the impact of a genetic condition on the patients I was meeting and the possible effects on, on their family led me to really try and understand more and more about the genetics that were causing their condition, but also uh, learn more about how I could support the families and support the patients. I was lucky then um, after doing the courses to get to, to get a job in Bristol on the 100,000 Genomes Project, which was a, a national project to um, the transformation project to, to map the genome of uh, sort of about 80,000 people with rare diseases and cancer. And I was very much involved with meeting the patients and the families and doing the consenting alongside doing some more academic study and and after the 100,000 genomes project completed I, I think it's maybe three years ago um, I was lucky enough to offer be offered a post as a, a trainee genetic counsellor to you know develop my my skills further so at the moment I'm training and day-to-day -day I'm spending time in different specialities within genetics really to try and gain experience you know get a wide experience of different inherited conditions and sort of develop my understanding and my confidence really and I'm still working as a specialist cardiac nurse. <laughs> that sounds really busy um, and it, I mean I think there's quite a, a good amount of overlap between the skills that nurses have and that genetic counsellors have. How do you find that in terms of the, the differences or the similarities in the two jobs that you're balancing now. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think we, we all have a, a core skill set that it sort of overlaps, really. I think spending more time in genetics has helped me understand more. I, I think clinicians are very much with the patient in front of them. That's the, what their concern is. And I think with genetics, we're understanding more that it's families as well and how that might impact other family members, not, not just the patient in front of us. So help, you know, hopefully I've been able to take that back into the nursing field and, and, and with my colleagues there and, you know, look at the whole family and, and future generations as well as the generations we've got in front of us now. That's great. Thank you. Now, Dave, would love for you to tell us a little bit more about your and your family's experience with genetic counselling, why you needed it, what, what was it like for you? Thank you. Yes, Dave been involved in working with and being supported by uh, Georgina Hall, uh, Principal Genetic Counsellor, and her team uh, working with Professor Graham Black and his team uh, within the Rare Genetic Eye Disease Clinic. I was born with a rare genetic site condition called microanophthalmia, which means arrested growth of the eye in utero. So the structure of both my left and right eye 
are weakened, they haven't been, they haven't grown properly, there is bits of missing. Long story short, microphthalmia is small eyes. Uh, the eyes haven't grown properly, they're smaller in size and less complete in their structure than most other people's eyes. Um, as a result of that, I was born and raised uh, as a child with very limited vision. Um, I've had some working vision in, uh, in my left eye, not so in my right eye, uh, and over time it has deteriorated. And this is a reality uh, for most people with my set of sight conditions and ophthalmia, uh, no eyes or micro-ophthalmia, small eyes, uh, that um, by adulthood or thereabouts, uh, not all, but a number of people will lose most of the working vision. Now, mine's been going down very gradually since 2015, when I was diagnosed with two further conditions called my, uh, macular atrophy, which is where the central part of the retina uh, is dying off. So I'm going blind. It's not a question of if, but when. And I also have a, a delightful condition called uh, diagnosed called Charles Bonnet syndrome, which is quite interesting because I have visual hallucinations. Um, and this is uh, not me having a psychotic episode, although I can assure you, to begin with, I thought I was until I was advised by the ophthalmologist. No, it is in this respect, it's quite standard. So I was losing my vision, as I say, I was working as a, uh, an SEN education manager to the local authority, writing statements of SEN, ironically, or educational health and care plans for disabled children and people in their families. Uh, I've always been involved in that, that line of work uh, or for many years in education, training and employment. Um, and my sight was going downhill very quickly. Uh, so I had to leave that role to get some rehabilitation use of a long cane, text enlargement software, those kinds of things. As part of that, I was in and out of Manchester quite a lot, having various tests and assessments. And in March 2017, I went for a consultation. And whilst they were the ophthalmologist, I was asking all kinds of awkward questions, as I do, because I'm very nosy and curious. And it just so happened that Georgina was present and she said, you're asking some really valid questions about the why and the how and the when and the what. She said, I don't have any answers for you currently. I really don't. But what we could do with your consent is put you or refer you on to a new research project, new then, called the 100,000 Genomes Project, which has already been mentioned. And so at that point, I joined the 100,000 Genomes Project, gave a sample of my blood, uh, signed a lengthy consent form, and I also agreed to additional findings. So not only am I hopefully going to find out at some point why I was born with this condition from a genetic diagnosis, uh, but also why it's deteriorating or has been from 2015, um, and also why all these other things have been occurring, as well as any additional findings. So is there anything else that um, they might find in addition to the reasons behind my sight loss? For example, I recently was diagnosed with osteoarthritis in various uh, locations throughout my body. Are the two linked? Question, we don't know. But if there is a genetic answer that links into the sight loss and the osteoarthritis, I would like to know. And I'm, I'm sure you guys would like to know too in terms of supporting other patients. So that's how I got involved with that. And Georgina and the team were brilliant in explaining the different steps and stages. The key question for me uh, is, or was, if I start a family, me and my wife start a family, should I say, will this condition be passed on to my children? Um, and the answer was, it literally is 50-50, flip a coin, because the nature of the, the initial test and assessment of my condition is my children may inherit this condition, or then again, they may not. 
it's occurred that both of my children, both my boys, have not uh, inherited this condition, which has led to some speculation as to whether it's held on the female line, my condition rather than the male line. My wife doesn't have any sight loss, any inherited conditions, and therefore, as the male with this condition, I have not passed it on to my children. They haven't come up with anything conclusive yet, but obviously as technology improves, long reads of the whole genome develop, and techniques to understand what the data is telling us improve and develop, I'm hoping that at some point soon, some clear answers will be given. And just to conclude, um, I am involved with the participant panel working with Genomics England Limited uh, to support the voice of the patient, not just those who've gone through the 100,000 Genomes Project, but now as we mainstream genome sequencing and genome testing into the whole genome service across the NHS and having that patient voice there and those directions and the guidance that and the insights that we as patients might be able to give is essential. I'm very honoured to be able to support and develop all that work. Thank you so much, Dave, for sharing your story. Um, I think you've you've really demonstrated how much people with rare conditions become experts in their condition, naturally so. And that's why it's so important that healthcare teams seek to understand your experience in order to be able to help support you in the best way possible, even if there aren't always answers available. Um, so thank you very much thank for that. And, and if I may just to, uh, add to that excellent point you've just made, it's one thing reading an abstract or getting involved in a piece of research, but you can't beat lived experience. And as you say, that's why the patient voice is absolutely essential for that. Absolutely. So I think we hear genetic counselling or genetic counsellors, and that automatically sort of sparks very different reactions or understandings in people because there aren't many genetic counsellors. Not everyone, at least not yet, encounters a genetic counsellor across their lifespan. So I'd be interested to know whether you think there's any misconceptions about genetic counselling. Maybe you've encountered them in your practice or in your experience and what that might be. Um, perhaps, Heather, I'll come to you first on this one. Yeah, so I think there's a, a lot of misconceptions. Um, I think one that's particularly um, topical right now that we're mainstreaming things is what is the role of genetic counselor if the genetic tests for diagnoses are being done through the mainstream pathway? If a, a genetic counselor isn't involved in the actual genetic testing itself up front. And uh, what I'm trying to do is sort of close the loop because what I've noticed is that um, some of the consultants that are ordering these genetic tests aren't necessarily referring the patients back to genetics for advice about how to deal with the condition and how to talk to their families about it. And I think that's something that is a misconception amongst consultants is the role of genetics after a gen genetic diagnosis has been made. And so what I'm trying to do right now is educate from both sides, both the patients and uh, the clinicians to make them aware that really we're still of great value to people even after they have a genetic diagnosis, probably especially after they have the genetic diagnosis. So I think if there was anything I was going to try to fix at this point in terms of misconceptions, it would be that. Sarah, do you want to go next? Uh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I was thinking about this uh, beforehand and that 
there's actually a few common misconceptions that occurred to me. Uh, one of them is I think that the, the word counselling sometimes throws people off and I think different people react to it in different ways because for you know the general public the word counselling sometimes would be imagined to be more of a long-term process of, of regular appointments and being psychoanalyzed or you know that that's quite different often genetic counsellors will see their patients perhaps or particular stages in life it's not an ongoing sort of psychotherapeutic relationship in that sense and so I think that for some people who are offered genetic counselling they might worry that they're going to be psychoanalyzed when they don't want to be or something like that what we're really here for is to be able to explain something that's really quite a complicated science but how that fits into your life and your family and your values and that your decision making and having that view is the counselling bit rather than you know people having to come along to spill their whole life story or their innermost feelings about everything else to us and I think that that's an important uh, misconception. I also think there's another kind of flip side to that from our sometimes from our colleagues who are doctors which is that I think they sometimes hear that there's a genetic counsellor around and I, you know I hope that doctors listening won't be offended when I say that sometimes they think oh my patient's crying let's go find the genetic counsellor. <laughs> that's that's the person we need right now. Well, hopefully for those listening to this that'll provide some clarification and reassurance. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Janice, what are your thoughts? Uh, yes, I mean, I would echo um, exactly what Sarah and, and Heather said. Um, and so in a way, I've taken it a slightly different, thinking of a different stance, really, in that um, patients, I think, often don't understand what the genetic testing is. So not only do they not know who the, what the genetic counsellor is, they don't know what is this appointment with genetics. And, and in my experience, I've met quite a few people um, who've sort of watched a lot of TV, and, and maybe that's been in the DNA programme, or, or they've watched something about DNA and crime, and they're sort of coming to this appointment, they're going to meet this, this person with this strange title, and, and what's going to happen to them. You know, they, they know they might have something in the family, but they also, I think, sometimes wonder what will be found out in the genetic test. So will something else be found out when the, that they've been part possibly of in a crime or you know something else about their family or even about themselves that they weren't expecting to know or, or not wanting to know. So I was sort of thinking I think it's really important for the genetic counsellor to sort of um, explain what, what they their role is but also what the genetic test is for. Absolutely. Dave how about you? My experience of working with the uh, with the team from Manchester first and foremost they made it very clear that they could not give any absolutes. That is not what this is about. To try and make sense of the data as and when it comes through for me, and I haven't had a confirmed uh, genetic diagnosis yet, I'm still waiting. Um, the testing continues, it's ongoing, but as and when it comes through, I'm very clear that Georgina and the team's role will be to interpret the probability because we are dealing not in absolutes, the technology is still in its infancy. Some parts we've made absolute massive leaps and bounds, which we can see in the treatment of certain forms of cancer. Absolutely fantastic. But in other areas, we're still very much right at the start of the journey, trying to get that messaging across. And I do need to make an important point here. When we look at how the 100,000 Genomes Project was communicated back in its inception in 2012, that morphed from we will unlock the secrets of the human genome to 
we will sample 100,000 genomes. Two very different messages. They both meant the same thing, but the way that messaging came across and the way it was received, initially there was euphoria, amazement, excitement, which then ended up into a bit of a trough, into a, a bit of annoyance and frustration and irritation, which you will see on the 100,000 Genomes Facebook page, if you'd care to look at some of the responses from patients like me who've been on the project, and in my case, waiting six years, haven't had a, an answer yet. Now, I understand the reasons why, and that's why I'm not going thump, 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 I'm cross. A number of patients haven't had the clarity of information. And so if it's one message or one lesson that we can learn from this, and I'm determined, given my work with the Northwest Genomics Medicine Service, as their interim chair of the patient and public voice panel, is that whatever information you are communicating, you do exactly what it says on the tin. Clarity of messaging, <laughs> what can you provide? How can it be provided? What does this mean for you, the patient? And I think that's so important. And I think partly one of the key roles of the genetic counsellor is to support with that clear messaging. That's just what I was thinking, listening to what you were saying there, Dave, which is such a great point, managing expectations and what maybe in genetic counselling speak we call contracting up front mm -hmm. is so, so crucial. Well, I just want to jump in there because um, when Dave was uh, explained that, it really reminded me of a common misconception that I experience in uh, PGD and the IVF clinic, which is that you know that I think that, like you were saying, Dave, that sort of promise of genetic technology is sometimes it's it's been hyped up in people's minds, whether it's from the media or whatever. I'm not sure, but they come to us thinking that once we've put them through the IVF and we've got made their embryos in the lab, that what we're going to be able to do is fix the genetic problem in the embryos and give them a kind of you know almost like a genetically engineered baby now whether or not people would want that designer babies and all of that gets you know flashed about in the media regularly even though it doesn't exist um but but actually it's not what we're doing you know it's much much we're a much earlier stage in technology than that and what we're doing is quite basic we're just testing the embryos and choosing but i often find myself having to um manage people's expectations of what actually is possible right now because i think people get carried away with the idea of the of the science Absolutely. Excellent point. Moving on a little bit to some of the different things that you've all been doing in your in your careers. Um, Janice, I wondered if uh, you could tell us a bit more about your experiences with participants. You mentioned that you've taken families through the process of consent and, and have been supporting them with return of results on the 100,000 Genomes Project. Were there any particular sort of pivotal or memorable moments in that experience that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think it's been really, really nice to think back to, to when I was um, working on the 100,000 Genomes Project and, and meeting the participants, I think, was such a privilege. And um, I think one of the standout sort of moments, if you like, was meeting whole families affected by inherited conditions, because, again, generally we just meet one one patient and, and their um, family member or a partner. But actually, in, in quite a lot of appointments, in fact, many appointments, I had multi-generational families um, in the clinic room in front of me. In fact, not enough chairs. You know, we had to get, get more space, which was um, just amazing. I, I worked mostly on the rare disease side and, and mostly with um, families with heart conditions, 
renal conditions and also eye conditions. So um, we, we had a lot of families that came together and I think it was really important for them to come as a family uh, and not just on their own. And one family in particular, I remember we had the older lady come and she, she'd already lost her sight. She came with her son who was losing his sight and, um, and his daughter who was in her early 20s, who although her sight was fine, they could see changes in her eye test to know that she she had the condition and she had her young baby with her so we had four generations um, in the room with us and I think the the effect of that condition on that family was really apparent and, and quite devastating for them really but the way they supported each other and helped you know cared for each other through what, what was happening to them. This really highlights that that family impact that you keep coming back to mm -hmm. that when you deal with genetics you're not dealing with just one person now heather you you've also worked and trained as a genetic counselor in a different country um like myself i'd like to know some of your reflections on what you think are some of the differences between areas of practice or ways of working in the uk versus elsewhere there are a lot of things that are fairly constant in the way that we deal with families. So I think the amount that we support families and the way we support them is very similar. But I think there's a lot of differences in the infrastructure of how we provide those services. And I also think there's probably a lot, well, I know there's a lot more variability in the scenarios in which we work in the U.S. versus the U.K. In the U.S., there is probably more of a focus, or at least there was at the time I was there, was now quite a while ago, about eight, ten years ago, was much more of a focus on sort of doing genetic education rather than so much of the actual support of the genetic counseling process, so the psychotherapeutic counseling. And part of that was because we also had to spend a lot of time when talking to patients about the practicalities of whether their insurance, their medical insurance, was actually even going to pay for the genetic testing. So a lot of time was taken up with these very crass discussions about, well, you might actually not be able to access this test you really need because your insurance won't cover it. So I think that we are very fortunate here to not have to worry about that type of thing. Now, we are quite restricted in what we can offer genetic testing for and who we can offer it to, but it's accessible by the entire population, which is much different than it is in the U.S., Another difference in practice, which is probably changing now more than it had been in the past, is that um, I think genetic counselors work in a much broader spectrum of positions in the U.S. than they do here in the U.K. Um, and, you know, I think part of that is regulation. So um, in the U.S., I was actually working for a couple of clinical laboratories that did genetic testing, and I played a very large role in actually writing the genetic test reports and in doing interpretation of variants, which was fascinating. And I think part of the reason I got to do that is because I'm trained as a Ph.D. in genetics, so I do have a little bit of you know, background. But I think that's something that traditionally hasn't really been so much of a role of genetic counselors here in the U.K., but now I think that we're changing our training methods to be much more crossover with other aspects of science. We do a lot of cross training in, in the scientist training program with bioinformatics and with um, the other specialties. That's interesting. We're, we're really, I think, a product of the, the country or the culture that we live in. Um, mm -hmm. And being yeah. such a small workforce, I think it's really helpful that we can do a little bit of our own thing because each country is different, but also seeing what's happening in other parts of the world really helps yeah. us kind of reflect on maybe areas that 
we haven't yet tapped into that we could or ways of doing things better, seeing what other people are doing. Um, and you mentioned about training programs. So, Sarah, I, I know there's been a lot of growing interest in the profession over the years. There's also a huge demand. Um, can you speak a little bit to how someone could train to become a genetic counsellor and, and what that's been like in the UK? In the UK, there's uh, a few different ways to become a genetic counsellor. And Heather already mentioned the scientist training program we call that the stp and that's uh, an nhs training program and it's the same program that's used as, as heather was saying to train other scientists in the nhs so laboratory scientists and, and various other professional groups and so we've been very lucky to be allowed to develop um, a genetic counseling sort of branch of that program but if you're into that program then it's basically a three-year training program it's a sort of a paid uh NHS post while you're in it and the um, requirements fulfilled to apply for uh, professional registration um, at the end of it. So genetic counsellors, once they've done their initial training, have to go, well, it's a voluntary process, but go through uh, a, a process of registration with our Genetic Counselor Registration Board to show that you meet the kind of competencies of the profession. Uh, before we had the STP, but also still now, there's the, the way of doing it where you do an MSc, a Master's Programme in Genetic Counselling, which prior to the um, STP was how a lot of people did it, it's how I came into it. Uh, there's two current programmes, one in Cardiff and one in Glasgow, and those are two year courses and uh, when you come out of that you would need to then apply for a training post so a sort of a junior genetic counsellor job in order to get enough clinical experience to fulfil the requirements to do your GCRB registration a bit further down the line. And then the final route to be a genetic counsellor is that like Janice, actually, you know, there are many people uh, who come into our profession who are already qualified healthcare professionals, nurses, midwives, clinical psychologists and, and others uh, who are already practising in a clinical area, but then get drawn into genetic counselling in the way that Janice did. So there are a few ways to become a genetic counsellor, um, but we are a tiny workforce uh, in a very large major organisation of the NHS. and. That means that, yes, there is huge demand for us and huge interest. It's still small numbers of people that are being able to get trained as genetic counsellors each year. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to keep growing that as time goes on. A clear need and whether we can meet that demand in the coming years. Absolutely. That's the challenge. Yep. So, Dave, I'd be really interested in your views. I mean, as genetic counsellors, we're, we're often described as very reflective and reflexive healthcare practitioners. We always want to do better, as I'm sure many people want to do for their patients. So what are some ways that you think things could be improved, um, particularly thinking about the role of the genetic counsellor and what we can do to help patients and families? Thank you. Excellent question. Um, uh, the answer for me, alongside what the ground we've already covered on that kind of expectation management, I think there's two or three other components. I think first and foremost, it's wherever possible being patient-centered. What do I mean? Trying to uh, get alongside and to understand, to unpick where that patient and or their family are coming from. What do they want out of this process? They may not understand initially. So having the curiosity and the ability to pose those key questions in an accessible format, which is my second point about the absolute importance uh, vital 
vitally important to use lay language, lay terminology. It's keeping the sense, but stepping the language down to uh, an accessible format, which patients and their families can understand and can follow. We use language, it surrounds us all the time. We use it in our day jobs, we use it you know, socially, and knowledge is power, language is power. And so in order to be patient-centered, to get alongside the patient and their family, to understand what they want out of this genetic counselor interaction, understanding what that interaction will involve, what it can offer them, that expectation management. Within all of that is the use of accessible language, which everybody can access, everybody can, can understand, so that ultimately you've equalized that power relationship. The, the patient and their family have an equal stake in that power relationship to help the whole genetic testing process be a bit less scary and a bit more understandable and a bit more approachable and something that the patient and their family will then ultimately want to engage with and be able to provide more information because they're comfortable, they're safe, they understand what's going on, what's being asked of them, and what may come out at the end of this process of, of genetic testing. So what can be improved? I would say those are four starters. Thank you, Dave. I think those are really helpful things for us to keep very much at the heart of what we do and as we think about what we can do better in ways forward. Final question. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think might change for the profession over the next, say, five to ten years. Sarah, maybe I'll start with, with you. I think that what's really uh, clear right now is that the NHS as a whole has a major priority um, and you've heard the word lots of times uh, during this discussion of mainstreaming, which basically uh, means that we're that the NHS is hoping for genomic testing to be rolled out much more widely, to be much more accessible, to not be held just in the small number of hands of the genetic professionals at clinics and, and to be available really on the ground, uh, you know, in speciality clinics for different types of health conditions. I'm sure Janice will talk soon about the kind of way that plays out in cardiology, but there's many, many settings, in fact, every setting where you could do genomic testing. And that undoubtedly is going to bring changes and possibly challenges to the work of genetic counsellors. And uh, actually, a lot of genetic counsellors or some genetic counsellors are already moving into mainstream roles. I myself don't work in a genetics clinic anymore. I work in an IVF clinic and Janice is obviously in a cardiology clinic. And uh, actually, Heather, you're in a paediatric setting now. So there's lots of genetic counsellors who are already moving to the mainstream to uh, deliver uh, genetics, you know, at the coalface, you know, in, and with uh, working with our colleagues from those specialities rather than just internally with our own colleagues who are geneticists. And I already is seeing uh, some roles whereby you've got some genetic counsellors, only a few at the moment, but who, for example, work across a whole hospital trust and sort of float from one speciality to another, being the kind of genetic expert in that hospital who can help with education for their colleagues, who can help pick up the, the more complicated cases and deliver the kind of processes for genetic testing, um, almost acting like a kind of a consultant who's um, kind of available to everybody. Um, and I think, again, that's a very exciting role. 
luckily, I think that as a profession, when we think about our future, we are really well equipped with a very wide range of skills. And that makes us, I think, able to adapt and uh, you know, be used in lots of ways by the NHS, by different settings to um, to fill in some of these gaps. And as I say, things like education and policy and delivery are things that I think we can also get involved in. So I feel um, very positive. Um, I think that, you know, adapting to, to change is something that we as um, our, our kind of clinical practice, we help our patients with that. You know, most of our families who we talk to are very much having to cope with adapting to a massive change in their lives of a genetic diagnosis. Well, sometimes I think when as a professional group, we can see the change coming to us and we sort of have to be genetic counsellors to ourselves to be able to, you know, kind of apply that um, and uh, and adapt and and cope with having to adapt. Sarah's got some really, really salient points. I think, you know, it is a huge change. It's a huge change for the whole NHS, you know, genetic counselling and, and other members of the multidisciplinary team. But I think it can work really well. And I think, um, you know, Dave said about putting the patient at the centre of what we do is really important. And mainstreaming in, in many ways does this. Um, within cardiology, we've worked really hard over the last few years to make mainstreaming work. And, and what we found is, you know, the collaboration and between the clinical genetics, so with the genetics counsellors and, and the clinicians, the cardiologists and the specialist nurses is the most important thing. And it's a really good time to share our knowledge and their knowledge and, and educate each other. And, and there's things we can learn from them, but also we, we can help really with, um, you know, Sarah mentioned about the more complex um, patients who, who may have sort of more um, family challenges or psychological problems that navigating the genetic test and, and the result can be more, more difficult for them. So that's a place where we come in both to help support our cl clinical colleagues, but, you know, take that work on and, and work with those patients as well, um, you know, I think is really important. And, and bringing the care for the patient, their pathway under one roof rather than sending them to one separate department um, just to pick up on the last couple of points there uh, uh, from, from from Janice and Sarah, I, I can I think I can say this perhaps where you may not be able to, but as a as a patient uh, and as someone involved in advising various committees nationally and regionally across the northwest, I think I'm able to make these two points. And that is, you are an honourable but small community if this is going to be mainstreamed across all seven genomic medicine service regions in England, certainly, I believe we need two things. We need resources. You need resources in real terms. You need money. You need input to develop more uh, larger training courses to reach a larger group of trainees coming through as the interests and the requirement increases, the demand increases. And you also need the, how do I put this, the promotion of the uh, career boost of genetic counsellor to uh, to raise the profile and raise the awareness, to raise the, the benefits of what you as genetic counsellors can actually do so that other clinicians, other medical professionals understand your central integral role in supporting the patients yeah, yeah, I think I think your your points are um, really, really important. 
um, we mentioned earlier about my role as, as a nurse and as um, a, a trainee genetic counsellor and, and the overlap. And I think we need, you know, it's good to remember that a lot of other healthcare professionals have some really, really good skills. And um, what a lot of them need is just a little bit more confidence or a little bit more understanding or just a little bit more time to think about some of the issues that a patient with an inherited condition that's having genomic testing might have as opposed to someone coming in for just a clinical test. So I think for many patients, and, and if, if some a clinician is talking to a patient about an inherited condition, it fits to talk about the, the genomics of it and the genetics of it. Um, I think the genetic counsellors we have have got a real opportunity to give their experience and knowledge to other members of the team to help them upskill themselves. So, that, so they're not becoming, you know, half genetic counsellors, but they have the, some of those skills and understanding of, of what these conversations um, are with, with patients and their families and, and what support they might, might be needing. Absolutely. Heather. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, bringing all this together, I think, you know, what we could really do um, to push this forward is to provide whatever evidence we can to those funding bodies, to those people in positions of power in public policy to demonstrate what our value is. And so I think research is a very large part of that. So research demonstrating what our value is and being involved in research and how to best provide these services to patients and their families. So I think um, we've, we, we are so underpowered from a, a, a workforce standpoint that we spend a lot of our time seeing patients, but we also have to carve out that time to do research into what the best way to do that for our patients is and be involved in those research initiatives so that we can prove our value. And also looking into the best way to leverage the experience of other professionals into providing those services to patients and also how to best educate those other professionals and how to mainstream those services. So that's one of the reasons that I want to be involved at the front end of this neural net project is so that we can foresee some of those potential problems with providing results to patients in a timely fashion and dealing with those expectations. So I think research is, is very key and something we can't overlook in all of this um, in actually arguing our case for why we need more support and how we can be more integrally involved in the, the mainstreaming effort. So in general, I think we just need to watch this space. There's a huge amount of opportunities, it sounds like, out there for genetic counsellors. Thank you. It's It's been a really interesting discussion. I really want to thank all four of you for joining me today uh, to share your experiences, your incredible expertise, um, and to celebrate the role of genetic counselling on Genetic Counsellor Awareness Day. So thank you very much. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. You can find out more about the Association of Genetic Nurses and Counselors at www.agnc.org.uk or on Twitter at the AGNC. If you have any views on these topics or have a person in mind you would like us to interview, do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
and that if you've enjoyed listening, giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. See you on the next episode of The G Word.